0: Good morning again. Um, Matthew asked me to share this passage from Isaiah prior to uh, the sermon this morning. So it's Isaiah 55, verses 8 through 13, if you want to follow along or if you just want to listen as I, as I read it to you. Uh, this is the word of the Lord. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and your ways are not my ways. This is the Lord's declaration. For as heaven is higher than the earth, so my ways are higher higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. For just as rain and snow fall from heaven and do not return there without resaturating the earth and making it germinate and sprout and providing seed to sow and food to eat, so my word that comes from my mouth will not return to me empty but it will accomplish what I please and will prosper in what I send it to do. You will indeed go out with joy and be peacefully guided. The mountains and the hills will break forth into singing before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thornbrush, a cypress will come up, and instead of the briar, a myrtle will come up. This will stand as a monument for the Lord, an everlasting sign, That will not be destroyed. Um, You know, I read that and I had to ask Matthew uh, this morning, what in the world does that have to do with the church and the state, (laughs) or us, our responsibility to the state? And he pointed out, the reason he wanted me to read it was because this, this word, this Bible is God's word, and what you're just about to hear from Matthew is God's word. Uh, So, I'm looking forward, as a, as a, honestly, as a career law enforcement officer, I'm looking forward to hear what he has to say about this uh, subject, which many of us really don't like much. Okay, Would you pray with me, please? Almighty God, I thank you for this church that has stood for over 125 years. I pray that it will stand until you return. I pray for, for the people here that they would continue to serve you unselfishly. I thank you for bringing Matthew to us. I thank you for the way he opens your word and helps us to understand it, and I pray that you will do that today. Uh, if, if this is an area that we struggle with, I just pray that you would help us to hear your words, your will, today. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
1: I'd uh, like to put a sentence on the screens for you. Let everyone submit to the governing authorities. How does hearing that sentence make you feel? Thank you, Daphne. True no, truly. Thank you. Think for a moment about our governing authorities in our city, in our county, in our state, at the national level. Let everyone submit. Maybe such an idea sounds horrible or makes you bristle Maybe you immediately think of the areas that this can't possibly work for a Christian. Your first thought is, (laughs) okay, there are all kinds of exceptions to this sentence, pastor. Or maybe you... Maybe you wonder why here in a church service on a Sunday morning when you were expecting to hear about grace and mercy and the good news and Jesus and sing a few songs and enjoy each other's company, you're thinking why are you even bringing this up? Why are you talking about the government in church? You're not supposed to do that. Remember our Maybe our 5013C status will be at risk because you're talking about the government. And you're asking such questions because maybe you were brought up with the mistaken idea, the mistaken idea that the Bible and Christianity do not address or should not address politics, the state, elections, like we are hurtling towards this November, public policy, civic authorities, laws at all levels, taxes, tolls, duties, fees, presidents, congresspeople, senators, governors, mayors, police officers, firemen, teachers, educational systems, search and rescue staff, DMV employees, judges, prosecutors, or sanitation workers. You think the Bible doesn't say anything about all of them. When in fact, the Bible does address such realities and offices and peoples. Because the sentence that you see on the screen before you is in the Bible. The Word of God. Along with seven other verses here in Romans 13. Turning your Bibles to Romans chapter 13. And these seven verses all elaborate on this sentence. Let everyone submit to the governing authorities. Listen, if this sounds horrible to you, if you bristle at this, if you're wondering how can this sentence even be in the Bible, you will find yourself in good company. This, this idea that Paul has written here, at the time of Nero, Nero, emperor of Rome, is so explosive and so surprising, has been to so many believers and theologians, scholars throughout the centuries that many believe Paul couldn't possibly have written it. They think that it was probably added later in the letter because it just, it doesn't make sense. You can't make sense of it, particularly in the flow of the argument, to what he's been saying all along. It just seems to come out of left field. But I believe that betrays a severe misunderstanding and misreading of Paul's argument. Because as I listen to Paul, it makes sense that he would address our attitudes to governing authorities at exactly this point in the letter. It fits perfectly in what he's been on about. You see, Paul has just been elaborating on personally that we are to personally detest evil and cling to what is good, chapter 12, verse 9. That we are to bless those who persecute us and not curse them, chapter 12, verse 14. That we are not to repay anyone evil for evil, chapter 12, verse 17. That we are not to avenge ourselves but leave room for God's wrath so that vengeance may properly be doled out, chapter 12, verse 19. And in this way, we will not be conquered by evil, but we will conquer evil with good. Chapter 12, verse 21. Which would leave us reasonably wondering okay, Paul, that's great. I like that. That makes sense. But how does that happen then? How does evil get taken care of if I'm not the one who's supposed to do it? How does justice get executed if I'm not supposed to take it into my own hands? I mean, I get you're saying that God's going to do that, but how? How is he going to do that? he's God. He's kind of up there. How's he do that? Because, Paul, we're not going to be able to create a little society of the kingdom of God advancing if said society is swallowed up by chaos and anarchy all around us, which are exactly the kind of musings and questions that we should have as good Bible students, Right? That's what we do here at Grace. We ask questions of the Bible and of God. These are questions that we should ask as we come to the end of chapter 12, which is why Romans 13, 1 to 7, I think makes perfect sense right here in the argument. Because in it, Paul describes exactly, exactly how God will get the business of vengeance and justice and civil order accomplished, how he's gonna do that, and what our roles are. And attitudes should be as he's doing that. So, just what are a Christian's duties to the state? What are a Christian's duties to the state? It's to this question that we now turn. I think a good summary sentence for Romans chapter uh, 13, 1 to 3, is the authority of the state. It's a good summary of verses 1 to 3. The authority of the state. Listen to what Paul says. Look at it in your own Bibles now. Are you there? Romans 13? Okay, got to get the word in front of you. Verse 1. Let everyone submit to the governing authorities since there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are instituted by God. So then... The one who would resist the authority is opposing God's command. And those who oppose it will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Do you want to be unafraid of the one in authority? Well, do what is good and you will have its approval. (laughs) Boy, I hear it. I just can hear, coming up from your brains, just so many objections. I had them too. Note first, note first. Who must submit to governing authorities? <laughs> this is a hard one. What does it say? Everyone. Now, I just want to make sure that everyone sees the word Everyone. Do you see it? No exceptions to what Paul is teaching. Believer, unbeliever, man, woman, boy, girl, rich, poor, powerful and powerless, connected, not connected, everyone submit to the governing authorities. Note second, why one must submit to governing authorities. So we know who, now why since there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are instituted by God. So then the one who resists the authority, if they're doing that, is opposing God's command, and those who oppose it will bring judgment on themselves. Paul could not be more clear. Those authorities that are placed in our lives, whatever office they may hold did not get into that office through merely an election or an appointment or hiring they received their role and authority from god which accomplishes this is really important this accomplishes at least two vital things in our society number one it makes sure that we are thinking and behaving properly as regards authorities Always placing before our minds that God put them there. God put them there. God is the one who has made them a terror to bad conduct. And so, if we don't want to be afraid, we should do the right thing. Don't want to be afraid of a police officer pulling you over? Don't speed and the conviction collectively fell over the congregation <laughs> am i the only one who I, you just see a police car and your heart rate goes <laughs> and you're like you immediate what do you do where does your foot go goes right to the brake <laughs> right even if you're already 5 miles an hour below the speed limit you're just like what am i doing wrong what am i know i'm doing something wrong Please. If you don't want to be afraid of an IRS audit, don't cheat on your taxes. Remember, if we resist authority, Paul is clear, we're resisting God. And we will bring, quite opposed to what we were hoping, because what we're hoping when we resist authority is to get away with something. But God says, if you do that, you're just going to bring judgment on yourselves. So that's the first vital thing I think this accomplishes in our society. What's, what's the second thing? I think the second vital thing that this truth that God places them over us accomplishes in our society is it reminds our rulers who they get their power from. And this text means that we can remind them of that respectfully. Respectfully. We'll see that in a minute what's it mean to submit but we get to remind them of that you see what paul is saying here the principle that he's putting in place is a corrective to the common hubris found in many of those who hold governmental authority in our fallen world in other words they forget who got them there and it wasn't themselves and it wasn't an electorate this this is a christian's duty to inject into the culture The person that got you there was God. Do you remember what Jesus said to Pilate? Who was abusing his authority by not stopping a monkey trial, convicting an innocent man. He was abusing his authority. What did Jesus say? You would have no authority over me at all if it hadn't been given you from above. That is why the one who handed me over to you has the greater sin. Which is what the Jewish authorities were doing. Weren't they? The greater sin. They were were also abusing their authority given by God. In other words, they were a terror to good conduct and not to bad. They were flipping God's design on its head and thus abdicating the role that they had been given. And I guarantee you, brothers and sisters, I guarantee you that Paul has very clear in his mind that travesty of governmental authority when he's writing Romans 13. He knows what happened to his Lord. And so he's not ignorant of our potential objection to submission to governing authorities, namely... (laughs) What if they do the wrong thing? What if they punish good and exalt evil? What do we do then? Is my submission supposed to be universal? Paul. Well, the first thing that we must understand, the first thing that we must do is understand what Paul means by submission. Because words mean things. And Paul doesn't choose his words willy-nilly. There are many words Paul could have chosen here. But he chose this one. And Christians should not bristle at it because there are all kinds of places where we are supposed to submit. We see that all over the Bible. The Bible calls on believers to submit to their spiritual leaders, 1 Corinthians 6.16. On each of us to submit to one another, Ephesians 5.21. For Christian slaves in Paul's day to submit to their masters, 1 Corinthians 14.32. For Christian prophets to submit to other prophets. For Christian wives to submit to their husbands, Ephesians 5, 24. Now, to submit is an interesting word. To submit is not exactly the same as obedience. At times, those words really overlap. There is a certain kind of understanding of obedience inside the word and activity of submission. Often, submission leads to obedience. However, it has its own Nuanced understanding. Here's how Douglas Moo defines submission. I think this is really helpful. Note this carefully. To submit is to recognize one's subordinate place in a hierarchy. A hierarchy that is established by God. It is to acknowledge that certain institutions or people have been placed over us and they have the right to our respect and our deference. Does does that make sense? How's that landing? Does that make sense? Okay, so it's to acknowledge certain institutions or people that have been placed over us and have the right to our respect and our deference. And here's something I've learned. Here's something I've learned about submission in my life. You know, as I've studied the relationship, I've had the privilege of marrying over 70 couples, which means over 70 premarital counseling sessions and talking about relationship between a husband and a wife and what does submission look like in that relationship. I've, I've lived and worked as an elder for over 20 years and understanding what does it mean to submit to my elders as an elder on a council of elders. I've, I've learned what it looks like to submit to my fellow brothers and sisters in Jesus and the thing that I have learned about submission, the most important thing that I have learned is that I am not submitting to an elder, to a brother or sister, primarily I'm submitting to God through you. When I look at you and God calls me to submit, when I look at you, when I look at a leader with all of their faults and imperfections and frailty and sin, right? Because that's, we see, it's, it's just self-evident, right? What, how can I possibly submit to you when I can see all the ways in which you're, like all of your shortcomings? <laughs> and I can so easily point them out as some kind of evidence to undermine my need or desire to submit to you because I'm not meant to look primarily at you. I, I look at you and I see right to Jesus, I see the king standing behind you. He says, submit to me as you submit to others. That's what Paul says elsewhere. I'm always seeing God at the top of the hierarchy, so I am able to submit, therefore, joyfully. Because the submission here is, (laughs) we used to tell our kids, obedience is to obey right away, all the way, and with a cheerful heart. And so often they'd get one and two, and utterly fail at number three. Right? We just. Well, I'll submit, but I'm gonna do it. Racking fries and racking. This concept has been particularly helpful in all of the years that Susan and I have been doing premarital and marriage and marriage counseling. As we spend time with couples, we come to this teaching on submission and the relationship of a wife to a husband. We explore what it looks like and, and, and it's this same concept that we're talking about. When, when a wife submits to her husband, more importantly, she's submitting to Jesus. And, and, and she has to understand, and we have to understand, and husbands have to understand in that relationship that submission doesn't always equal agreement. a wife will frequently disagree with the way a husband may be leading. (laughs) To which all the husbands say, amen, brother. (laughs) And at the same time, while disagreeing with his leadership, express an attitude of submission and a recognition of the husband's authority in their marriage. And Susan and I are always very clear about this. If that leadership, or exercise of authority moves that man to cause you to sin, that's where submission doesn't stop, but obedience does. You do not allow a husband to lead you into sin. In other words, one must always submit, but sometimes one may disobey. More on that in a minute, because maybe you're going, uh, wait a second. Aren't those mutually exclusive? They're not. Listen, friends, Paul was quite aware of governing authorities being worthy of critique. If you read what happened to him in multiple instances in Acts, when he was wronged by one set of authorities, how do I know that he critiqued them? Because he would appeal to another set of authorities. So he's critiqued, you're not doing what, I'm going to appeal to another authority. Remember, this is a man frequently wrongly jailed and beaten by the very authorities he is instructing we submit to. So if you're like, oh, Paul just doesn't understand this, come on now. He certainly does. He is not naive to the difficulty and the dangers here. So what do we do? Is there ever an exception to our submission? Is disobedience ever justified? And this is why it is so important you this is why I just want to, we, like, we want to encourage one another to, to be whole Bible people. We've got to know this whole book so that when we come to a difficult teaching like this that doesn't maybe to us seem to make sense in the Bible, we have to make sure that we understand the whole Bible, what it has to say. Because there are all kinds of instances in the Bible that Paul knew too, of God's children being submissive to and at the same time disobedient of governing authorities. Now remember Mu's definition. That's what's really important here. Submission is to acknowledge certain institutions or people have been placed over us and have the right to our respect, but not always our obedience. There was a time when Pharaoh ordered Hebrew midwives to kill newborn baby boys. And what did they do? They refused to obey why? Exodus 117. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had told them. They let the boys live. Furthermore, <laughs> this is just... oh man, when they were asked about, do you remember when Pharaoh asked them about it? What did they do? They lied. And God was good to them because they lied to the rulers he had placed over them. Wow. There was the time when King Nebuchadnezzar issued a public policy that all his subjects had to fall down and worship an idol that he had constructed whenever a certain tune was played. You remember three guys? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. What did they do? They submissively, they submissively, they didn't organize a riot. They didn't put together a coup. They submissively disobeyed. They were thrown into a furnace where what happened? God was with them and protected them while they were doing what? Disobeying who? The king he had placed over them. Isn't that what you just read in Isaiah? There was the time when King Darius made it public policy that no one in his realm could pray to any God but him for 30 days. What did Daniel do? He disobeyed. How did he do it? Submissively, went quietly to his room and kept doing what he had been doing all his life, praying to God. And what happened to him? He was thrown into a lion's den. And what happened to him? God protected him while he was doing what? Disobeying who? The king that he had placed over Daniel. There was a time when Jewish governing authorities placed in power by God, demanded and made it a governing policy that the apostles not preach the good news of Jesus the Messiah. And what was their response? Respectfully, submissively, disobediently. Peter and the apostles replied, we must obey God and not people. And it is this understanding of the story and scope of the Bible with all of its teaching on wisdom and foolishness, on good leadership and bad, on abusive leaders and life-giving leaders, on those authorities who bring about freedom and those who institute oppression. It is this story that must shape us and form a wisdom in us that will guide us so that we know how to respond when authorities exalt the evil and punish the good. Have we not for the last few years been living in a time when that kind of wisdom is desperately needed? should churches obey the state when they command us not to meet to worship? What should our attitude be toward policies being put in place on what we must put on our face or inject in our bodies? How should we react to crazy, crazy, I mean, this word applies insane teaching in our educational systems on human sexuality, the basic definitions of a boy or a girl. Now, Christians, we've seen this too, haven't we? Christians will, of course, disagree on what the responses should be. Have have we not seen? So, grieves my heart as a pastor, churches torn apart over these kinds of issues. There's all kinds of responses that we could give to a variety of policies and laws. But as we disagree, and as we argue it out, and we should argue, I'm not saying that we shouldn't argue, but I'm saying we should do it respectfully. Right, the classical definition of an argument. We we, we should, we should argue that out, but how we should do that is with our Bibles open, in humility, not treating any one text as a throwdown. How often have I seen people grab one sentence in the Bible and just use it like a cudgel instead of having a thoughtful whole Bible exegesis to come to biblically wise conclusions for how we will respond, for how we will determine a Christian's duties to the state. John Stott wisely says, whenever laws are enacted which contradict God's law, civil disobedience becomes a Christian duty. That is such a good sentence. All these heroic refusals, the kind that I have shown you in Scripture, in spite of the threats which accompanied the edicts, these heroes refused. And in each case, civil disobedience involved great personal risk, including possible loss of life. What are you prepared to do? What are you prepared to do? In this sentence, I just see this, this sentence is like a guiding beacon for us. In each case, when you read these stories in the Bible, the purpose was to demonstrate their submissiveness to God and not their defiance of government. Family, that nuance is so absolutely critical. Why are we disobeying? What Stott is saying is that we don't do so primarily in defiance of government but in submission to the laws and ways of God. It's a massively important distinction in our thinking and attitude and behavior as we carry out potential civil disobedience that we may be called to carry out as one of our duties to the state and that they will not understand that we're actually saying it's our duty to actually disobey you right now. How often have oppressive governments rolled out Romans 13? to actually justify their behavior. And how often have they felt hardened in that behavior? Because people got wrong, the priority of my attitude here is submissiveness to God and a kind of submission, right, submission. When my wife disagrees with with me in a way that is still submissive at the same time, what happens? I listen to her more closely. Right when someone does that, you, you've experienced that, haven't you? When someone, the difference between someone coming up like, rah, 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 versus, you know, have you thought about it this way? What are those, how do you want to respond to this guy? I just want to punch him right in the nose. This guy stops you short. See, is it, am I coming with an, an, an attitude of humility that this is about my God? And I'm sorry, I can't obey you right now. You've been placed there by him. Here's the hierarchy. Governor, mayor, county official. Do you see how such a response will guard us from returning evil for evil? From being vengeful or bitter? Family. (laughs) This is what's so great about being a Christian. Paul is saying, we gotta be joyful, joyful in demonstrating our submission to God. And we need to be joyful when that runs parallel and in line with submission to the state or to be joyful in demonstrating that submission when it's in direct opposition to the state. And in that way, we will be a proper witness of Jesus who, goodness. Goodness. When he submitted to God, he did so with no reviling in his mouth, and he went quietly to his death because he would not be who the authorities wanted him to be, and he would not do what the authorities wanted him to do. You know how we'll do this with confidence and with joy? It's to know that in the same way that we will be held accountable for our behavior, because that's what Paul says here, right? You're gonna be accountable for your behavior in this, if you're gonna listen or not to submitting to the governing authorities. Part of what helps me do that in joy, and this is a little cheeky, is to know they're gonna be held accountable too. This is another thing that Susan and I learned in our marriage. She, She could submit to leadership that God had placed in my hands as her husband because at the end of the day, she's like, hey, when Jesus comes to the door, he ain't asking for me. He's, uh, can I talk to Matthew? I, I, got, I got words with Matthew. Doug Wilson, when servants use the master's resources for tasks unassigned by the master, read Jesus' parable in Luke 12. What is the result? <laughs> it goes really bad for those servants. When King Jesus comes back to evaluate his deacons in the Congress, what will he do? He will not be indiscriminate. The punishments will fit the crimes. Some he will cut and sunder. Others he will simply beat with many stripes. This will not happen because our rulers are not his deacons. Rather, it will happen precisely because they are. To which I just to
0: Wow.
1: Huh. Okay. Vengeance is not mine. God's, Jesus is going to come back and judgments will be rendered. And, and isn't it interesting that he says, that what Wilson says are, is deacons? Where does he get that idea? Well, he gets it from Paul, somewhat surprisingly. This is what he teaches next. That And here's a summary over verses 4 to 7. The ministry of the state. So we saw the authority of the state. Now we see the ministry of the state. Verse 4. For it, the state, the governing authorities, is God's servant. Original language, diakonos. What's that sound like? Deacon. It's where we get the word deacon. It is God's diakonos for your good but if you do wrong be afraid because it does not carry the sword for no reason for it is god's diakonos an avenger that brings wrath on the one who does wrong therefore you must submit not only because of wrath but also because of your conscience and for this reason oh boy we love this one hey it's february everybody for this reason you pay taxes oh thank you jesus how many people say that when you send those forms off? Oh, thank you, Jesus. Thank you for the opportunity to pay my taxes this year. Hallelujah. Since the authorities are God's servants. Le to groy. We'll get to that in a second. Continually attending to these tasks. Pay your obligations to everyone, taxes to those who you owe taxes, tolls to those you owe tolls, respect to those you owe respect and honor to those you owe honor. So why does the state have authority? Because the state has a ministry assigned by God. That's why. You have to have some authority to have the ministry. Paul had affirmed with three different supporting statements the state's authority, verses 1 and 2. And now here, Paul makes clear that the state has been signed a ministry of service by God. And he gives three reasons. They are God's servant for our good, they are God's servant as an avenger that brings wrath on the one who does wrong. They are God's servants always attending to the tasks they have been given, which is something, you know how often I say this, really. I saw something in the Bible that I've never seen before. I love that. I love that when that happens. I've never seen this before. Because I've, I've not studied Romans 13 in the Greek to see that when we're translating it in so many English translations as servants, it's deacons. And, and I think that that's absolutely amazing what Paul has done here, family. I think it's exciting because it's helpful for us called to be good citizens, right? We're called to be good citizens, called to function with an attitude of thanksgiving for what God is doing in the world to bring peace out of disharmony and order out of chaos. Look at what Paul has done and what God has done. He has taken the very same word that he uses for those who serve the church as teachers and evangelists and administrators and greeters and financial clerks and building managers and all the rest of it, diakonos, deacons, and he uses the same word. Word. (laughs) to apply it to politicians, election judges who will serve this November, civic authorities, presidents, congresspeople, senators, governors, mayors, police officers, firemen, teachers and educators, search and rescue staff, DMV employees, judges, prosecutors, and sanitation workers. They are deacons. (laughs) How much might that change your attitude If when those blue and red lights were flashing in your rearview mirror and you were waiting for the officer to come walk up to your window and ask you to roll it down, and then you rolled down your window and you saw the little name badge and you said, well, hello, Deacon Bob, how are you today? Could you please point out to me how I have broken thy law? Even more strongly in verse 6, he uses a different word that we translate as servants, but we miss a little something there, leiturgoi. It's a word that's more specific to an agent in service of a deity, think priest. (laughs) Whoa, Paul, what are you doing? Paul is making clear that just as we see God appointing servants in the church family to bring about his purposes in the world, in the same way, and as importantly, we see God appointing servants in the culture at large to bring about his purposes in this world. Paul blurs the lines between these deacons and this priestly word because God does. The governing authorities are servants for our good, the governing authorities are servants assigned to bring about wrath on the one who does wrong. And this now, this is how I go, how do you want a esteemed theologian from the past, how do you want to try and excise this and say this doesn't even make sense and it's in, Paul's, in Paul's argument? Because it's perfectly connected to Romans 12. Paul instructed us in Romans 12 to give room for God's wrath. And now here we find the deacons who function in God's societal system to bring his wrath about. So that anarchy doesn't reign. Paul makes clear the diaconal role of the state as regards good and evil. And we're to submit to them. And not only to give a proper room for wrath to operate, but by means of the proper diaconal authority, but also because of conscience. See what he says there? Because of conscience. In other words, we know in our bones this is right. Paul teaches that there is a kind of discernment in us about what the state is up to, for which it bears and holds the sword to bring about wrath. Ernst Cosman, Kosman was a German Lutheran theologian, and it was a German Lutheran theologian, Paul, that wrote, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, so there's your connection, brother, who lived and ministered in Germany Kaziman lived in and ministered in Germany at the time of the Third Reich. So imagine this guy getting to Romans 13 in the preaching sermon series in the time of the Third Reich. Kaziman stated of this verse right here Christian obedience is never blind. And indeed, open-eyed obedience directed by conscience must even be critical. Then he sees Romans 13 5 through the lens of Philippians 1 9 where Paul prays that the Philippians believers love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment so Cosman takes that theological principle from Paul and says that discernment requires that the church draw the boundaries of its obedience at the place where the government prevents Christians from living out their identity and task as Christians in practical terms, this means that when the government forbids the Christian from bearing faithful witness to Messiah's rule over the world and engaging in humble service to others, the Christian therefore must disobey the government by conscience. In these circumstances, the conscience of the believer, Paul refers to in 13.5, should lead him or her not to obedience, but actually to resistance. So that Cosman can say, Sometimes the government may narrow down the church's room for maneuvering even into the compass of a prison cell or a grave. Okay, that that could be the potential cause. Our conscience under God leading us to a righteous disobedience, he says it, it could press us right down into a prison cell or a grave. But then he says this, Sometimes the king of the world speaks more audibly out of prison cells and graves than out of the life of churches which congratulate themselves on their agreement with the state. And remember, he is saying that in a time when Hitler is rising. But Paul has just a little bit more for us and we're done. Think about this. Look at verses six and seven with me, please. We give, right? We give to our church in obedience to God so that deacons, so that our deacons here who who are the main body that, that run the finances of our church and steward the money that you're giving to God, not to grace. Okay, let's be clear on that. You don't give to grace. You give to God. We're a means of that. We give so that deacons have resources that they need for a church to perform its ministry, right? To perform its ministry, to advance God's kingdom rule under the directions of the elders that he has put in place. So it should come as no surprise, really, that Paul would instruct that we should supply the resources necessary to the deacons of the governing authorities so that they might perform the ministry that God has given to them so that his purposes can happen in the world. Doesn't that make sense? And so, while we may quibble about the amount of taxes that we pay or how the government stewards those funds, we pay taxes. Sales, property, income, and otherwise. We pay tolls, building permits, tolls on highways, and otherwise. We give our respect to police officers when they pull us over, when they pull us over to city councilmen that we may disagree with, to the inspector who comes into our home. We give honor to those who have served well, affirming mayors who bring about good policies, senators who care more about their country than themselves. We thank a military person every single time we see them for their service to this country. Michael Bird, worship team, would you come up? Michael Bird says this, Christians have a responsibility to order our lives around the story and symbols of Jesus. Okay, that's our responsibility. And what that means is we're to live our lives as exemplary citizens and we must let it be known always that our loyalty is owed first and foremost to the true king of the world. And who is that? Do you? know? Who is that? Jesus Messiah. Christians, and I love this. Oh, this is a good, this is like my new tagline. Christians are to make a nuisance of ourselves. (laughs) Yes. I mean, who doesn't want to be a nuisance? Who doesn't want to be a pebble in the shoe? Come on. Christians are to make a nuisance of ourselves by setting up an alternative society to the tyrannical one that surrounds us. Isn't that what we've been saying? Our little circle diagram, right? Like we are setting up an alternative society. We're gonna be a nuisance. Submissively, respectively, respectively, honoring. In other words, says John Stott, the good news is equally hostile to tyranny and anarchy. Oh man, that's a good sentence. Wow! And this is, see, this is where I got, I was on the prayer walk on Thursday before I was writing the sermon, I'm like, Father God, where's the good news in this? There's just like, it's all about the state and government and someone's gonna be there and they don't know Jesus and, like where's the good news they're coming to hear the good news well here's the good news the good news is the power by which we do this the good news is me realizing that I've been saved I've been forgiven of my sins all my wrongs have been atoned for I've been welcomed in the family of God I've been adopted as his son there is a power that is available to me in the Holy Spirit to live exactly as I ought to live and to give me the wisdom that I need to respond rightfully to the state that God has placed over me. And if you want to be that kind of person, oh goodness, you need Jesus. You need Jesus. And you need Him today. And what we need to do is to win others into this society. Because Paul has already said in Romans 14:11: one day, every knee will bow. Every king, every president, every senator, every congressperson, every Colorado Department of Wildlife officer (laughs) will bow the knee to Jesus. Your glorious cause, oh God, your glorious cause engages our hearts. (laughs) May Jesus Christ be known wherever we are. We ask not for ourselves, but for your renown. And so we pray your kingdom